No credentials. Greatest album. Welcome to the Sound Logic Podcast. This episode needs a little bit of introduction. Several months ago, we reached out to Andrew Hickey, a fellow podcaster who has an incredible podcast called A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs. We were approaching an album on our 2012 list called <laughs> Back to Mono, 1958 to 1969, which is a compilation album that includes just a ton of Phil Spector music. We'd reached out to Andrew asking him if he'd be a guest, and he wondered if he could join us for that episode. Uh, we got together, we recorded, and then um, in the midst of our planning to release that, the new uh, list came out and sort of threw a wrench into our plans. We looked through that list for where Back to Mono wound up, and it dropped from number 65 all the way down to number 489. Um, <laughs> rather than waiting for another, oh, what would that be, Mike, uh, seven or eight years to get, yeah. to, to get to Back to Mono, we thought that would s- severely date our recording, um, a, a fantastic recording that we had with Andrew. And so we thought, why not release it to you seven or eight years early? So today you get to listen to uh, episode number 489. Yeah, that's right. This compilation album is uh, came out in the 90s, was a four-disc set. Mm-hmm. And the fourth disc was Phil Spector's Christmas album, which was called A Christmas Gift to You. And they just put it in there as part of this set. So this is our Christmas gift to you. We Perfect. hope you've been... Uh, enjoying your time at Christmas. And even though it's probably very different this year than it has in other years, we hope you're uh, still able to celebrate in some way, whether it be virtually or with a very, very small group. We hope you're all being safe. We hope you're healthy. And we hope you enjoy this review of an album that's not going to come up on this list for a very long time. Uh, It was great to have Andrew on. And as he'll reference when you listen to it, has also written many books Mm -hmm. on music from this genre, uh, the Beach Boys, and uh, many other artists who are closely linked to Phil Spector. We really want to thank Andrew again. Um, He was very, very understanding, as a fellow podcaster would be, about the new Rolling Stone list and sort of said, it's up to us if we ever want to release it. Uh, If we want to wait seven or eight years, that's that was fine with him. But we just thought it was such a good conversation. We'll get it out now. He also seems willing to come back and join us for something else. And um, we think you'll agree with us that he he makes for a pretty fantastic guest. And I'm sure we'll get him back somewhere here in this new uh, 2020 Rolling Stone list. Yeah, it's always always exciting to have an expert on. I think so. He he is. uh, It's an understatement to say that he's an expert because he's literally written the book (laughs) on (laughs) many books on this on this music. So we hope you enjoy that review. Uh, As you may have heard, we're taking a little break. Um, So in a few weeks, we'll have something new for you. But until then, you can enjoy our Back to Mono review coming up right after this. Happy holidays. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the Sound Logic Podcast. And today we're discussing Back to Mono, a compilation of music by Phil Spector. As we sometimes do, we are really excited to have a guest with us to discuss the uh, album of uh, that Mike just mentioned. We're excited to welcome Andrew Hickey to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Um, the, the story of how you arrived sort of in my space requires some explaining. Uh, longtime listener of our show and actually a, a guest contributor to our show, uh, Thomas Bona was on uh, several several months ago, and uh, pretty soon after he was done recording with us, said, hey, and by the way, have you ever heard of the podcast A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs? And my ears kind of perked up, you know, someone else is out there in the world doing a podcast that's going to take them 500 of something. Um, you know, <laughs> they must be a kindred spirit. And uh, and so I checked it out and was, was completely floored for... For as much love as Mike and I have for music, um, you really take it to a next level, so to speak, in terms of getting into the history behind the music, um, the way things sort of came to be, how music evolved. And uh, if you are unfamiliar with Andrew's podcast, please go check it out. There's so much more to Andrew as well. He's also an author. And if you go to Amazon and type in Andrew Hickey, you'll find that he's written uh, several books and he, he's interested in things beyond music as well. I'm curious, Andrew, are there are there things that we are leaving out of that very, very short intro that you want to lift up and highlight here this evening? How do you introduce yourself uh, when people say, who are you? <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm a, a writer and a podcaster, and at the moment, mostly a podcaster. Um, I, as you say, I've written, I've written quite a lot of books, 20-something books. Um, <laughs> think, think, uh, a few novels, a, a couple of books on TV, like Doctor Who and things like that, a couple of books on comics, and a lot of books on music. Um, and the podcast, as you say, is... It's called A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs, and it starts in 1938. It's going to go up to the year 2000, and over that time period, I'm going to look at 500 songs and talk about the artists who created them, um, how they changed the history, the history of rock music, how, how these artists interacted with each other, influenced each other, and the social context in which they operated as well. Yeah. And I think there's a book that you will eventually plan on releasing alongside the podcast. Is that correct? I've released the first of the series of books. I mean, uh, these um, I'm doing a book a year. I'm just uh, I'm just now getting to the end of the second year of the podcast. Um, I do 50 episodes a year with a two week break, and in the two week break, I edit down the transcripts of the, of the podcasts and release them as books. Oh, so last year I released volume one, which is called. Um, from Savoy Swingers to Clock Rockers and covers the period 1938 to, to the end of 1956. Um, and that's, um, it's about half, a quarter of a million words. So it's a, it's a big book in itself. And then I'm going to be releasing the next one, which is going to be called From the Million Dollar Quartet to the Fab Four, when, as soon as I've managed to edit all the transcripts together of the next batch of 50 episodes. Oh, that's wow. awesome. <laughs> 
Wow. <laughs> we could have been writing books while we were doing this, Mike. What have we been oh, doing this whole God. time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me just add that to the list. <laughs> uh, Andrew, your, your accent is neither uh, Canadian where Mike and I grew up, nor is it American where I am currently living. Can you tell us a little bit about where you hail from right now? I'm, I'm British. I live in Manchester, which is in the northwest of England. Um, but my accent is actually, it's a sort of generic northern accent. My parents are from Liverpool, and there's a lot of Liverpool in my accent, so you'll be hearing that. Um, and I'm, I'm from, I, I was born sort of halfway between Liverpool and Manchester. They're only about 30 miles away from each other, you know. Um, and yes, yeah, so yeah, I'm northwest of England. All right. Well, we're glad that you're here, and we, um, this album in particular, it's one that neither Mike nor I know very much about, and it is, uh, if you haven't yet heard of this massive album, it's a, uh, a four-CD box set that uh, covers um, more than a decade of music from one single record producer, and so it's got dozens and dozens of, of musicians, artists on it. And um, it's it's somewhat overwhelming if you are diving into it for the first time. So having someone with some some history knowledge and someone who uh, has an appreciation for this music, I think, is only bound to be a good thing for this podcast. And and you all can be grateful out there if you're listening that it's not just Mike and I trying to make sense of this by ourselves. This evening. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would have been uh, spotty for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this album came out in 1991. So even though we're talking about music recorded between 1958 and 1969, it's relatively new, especially compared to the rest of the music on the Rolling Stone Top 500 album list. Um, it's not something that I grew up with. Mike, it's not something you grew up with. Andrew, is there an earlier memory for you of this album coming out? Or uh, what was your introduction to it? I don't remember it coming out, um, but I've known the album about 20 years. I, um, I've i always known who Phil Spector was and sort of the big hits and so on. Um, because I since I was tiny, I've been a massive music nerd. But I, you know, 1991 when this came out, I was 12, so I wasn't in the market for buying big CD box sets. So I got to <laughs> when I was a student, when I was about, when I was about 20. Um, and I've, I've listened to it many times over those years, um, and um, I sort of got into Spectre mostly actually through Beach Boys fandom. I'm a huge fan of the Beach Boys, and mm. Brian Wilson is a big Spectre obsessive, and so I got into it. I got this because because of being such a Beach Boys oh, fan, as much as anything else. Yeah, interesting. And was it love at first sight? I mean, this is this is an album that covers a lot. Did it? Did you listen and think what what the hell is this? Or did you listen and think, ah, oh, I see where this fits with uh, the Beatles and and other artists that worked with him, or, or how did that initial entry point into this album go for you? Um, it's definitely the latter. Um, I have to say um, one thing that's going to come up a lot here. I am less impressed by Spectre as an artist than most people who pay any attention to him are. Um, I, I, I saw what he was doing, and I'd heard what he was doing done by other people before before that. There's a lot of very, very, very strong music on the, on the box set, no question. Um, and yeah, obviously we'll talk about a lot of that later. But my impression was generally 
okay, I see what he's doing. I see how how this is work. How how this works. You know, it, it, it wasn't a this blows me away kind of a thing. You know, and obviously before hearing that, I already knew a lot of the big hits. You know, I knew be my baby. I knew then he kissed me. You know, River Deep Mountain High. Those kind of things. You know, um, so it was it wasn't like. Even when I came to it for the first time, I wasn't coming to it completely fresh. You know, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't like yeah. some something obscure I'd never heard of before. You know, yeah. Unlike some of the compilation albums that are on this uh, list of music, this is not an obscure collection of songs. I think you're right. Like even even my brand new ears to it a few weeks ago, whenever I played it for the first time, was like, oh, oh, this is here. Oh, okay, yeah. I didn't realize yeah. that was yeah. Bill Spector. Now it makes sense, and uh, yeah, it's interesting. And you definitely hear the not only musical but but technical the in terms of the technology and the technique of recording you hear that common thread throughout it uh you you hear kind of what's happening not just in terms of the style but in terms of the quality and type of sound you're hearing you kind of go okay i i i I looked at the list and thought this is going to be all over the place and in one sense it is but in the other sense it's there's something that ties it together which i found interesting yeah so uh let's just move right on to some details and andrew feel free to jump in anywhere here if we say something and and you think it leads into something else just jump right in sure sure details 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 this album specifically this compilation as you mentioned ben was released november 12th 1991 and it's a survey again of the music that Phil Spector produced from 58 to 69 over a wide variety of artists and a lot of different artists who joined in, as you mentioned, uh, Brian Wilson, Sonny Bono, uh, Glenn Campbell, many other people joining in and many different groups like the Ronettes, the Crystals, uh, the Righteous Brothers. We'd like to talk about how these albums chart. Um, We don't really see a chart position for this album, which we have was a, is a common thread with some of these compilation albums. They come out in the nineties and the fans are getting them, but they're not really charting. So I was gonna say, this, this was um, the era of the big box set and the expensive box set. I mean, this would have cost you um, about 50 or $60 in 1991 dollars. So the, the, right. the, the, this was aimed at the high end of the market. It, it wasn't mm. something that was intended to be, to be a big chart success. And, you know, uh, there True. were t- tons of this kind of box set coming out of that time. The Beach Boys did one of those in uh, 1993. There was, again, very expensive, five CDs, six CDs, and... They, they, these things were in, intended for mostly for, for older people, people uh, the boomers who now had a bit, a bit of money and were rebuying all their old collections on CD and right. so they, they would charge ridiculous amounts of money for them. It's not like now where you go onto Amazon and you can find this for, I don't know, £20 or something it, it, was, right. it, it was an expensive thing and it was a sort of prestige item so yeah, it wouldn't have charted It was like for collectors too, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay yeah, we see that many of the of the songs charted when they came out originally. Yeah, um, and some of them were unreleased as well. And also, we don't have a number for sales uh, either. But as you said, it would have been less people buying it, but it cost a lot more. So that's the balance there. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was a four CD set or five LPs. <laughs> um, and I I looked up pictures of this, and I don't know. Do you have this one, Andrew? Um, I don't have a physical copy anymore. I've got MP3s. So. Right. 
Um, so it came, the CDs came, it was a flat box and you took the lid off and the four CDs, the jewel boxes were in this cutout little foam or cardboard sitting yeah. flat. So you opened it up and saw all four and in the middle was a little uh, round pin that yeah. said back to mono. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was great. And then also the, um, the LPs were in again, a, a box, you open it up and flat packed were five LPs <laughs> in there so quite a quite an interesting packaging and that was i think the gimmick for a lot of those uh box sets was it there was some interesting packaging or yeah when you i remember going to to record stores cd stores in the 90s and i don't know about you andrew where you were living but there was always they were always stacked behind the cash um they were stacked (laughs) up because not only were they really expensive but you wanted to display them somewhere not only did they not fit anywhere with the regular CDs, but they had to be kind of up on shelves as these big uh, kind of elaborate things. And I yeah. imagine, yeah, that wasn't something that they were selling every day. They were kind of a big deal. And we've talked before that the packaging of them and the and the graphic design on some of them is just bizarre. We'll get into that in this one too, maybe. <laughs> the compilation covers all of Phil Spector's produced music. Uh, the only exception is some of the music he did by the Paris sisters. Andrew, something to add uh, there? Yeah, there's a couple of tracks on here early on that Spectre didn't produce or co-produced. Um, things like Spanish Harlem, which he co-wrote, but that was a lead and Star production. Yeah, and actually a word here, it does also include this Christmas album, which I found really fascinating because the Christmas album also appears on Rolling Stone's list of the greatest albums of all time uh, about 100 albums from now we'll get to listen to that it's yeah. here in its entirety so they have not only have they selected this box set that has the album a selection of music from this collection shows up later in the list it's really strange but that's um, weird oh boy another problem <laughs> with this 500 list <laughs> yeah one group of musicians that we've talked about before uh is the wrecking crew and we see the wrecking crew uh showing up here again and they appear and i'm sure different uh formations and different combinations of the people who made up the wrecking crew uh show up on a lot of phil specter's work and his wall of sound uh, style they show up there so wrecking crew showing up again i think the first time was uh album number two which was pet sounds is when we first uh saw them and they showed up many other times as well did Spectre produce Pet Sounds? Because it has that no. wall of sound kind of kind of feel um, to it. it. It it does have that kind of feel to it, but that was produced by Brian Wilson. Um, oh yeah, Brian was Brian was a major major fan of Phil Spectre. Um, he talked about how the first the first time he heard the Do Run Run, no, then it was I can't remember if it was do, no, it was Be My Baby. The first time he heard Be My Baby, he had to pull over to the side of the road in his car and just listen to the, listen to the whole thing, <laughs> wow. that kind of thing. Um, and Brian would turn up to Phil Spector's sessions early on and just study what he was doing. He was actually more studying Jack Nitsch's arrangements of Phil Spector's sound. If you listen to if you listen to Pet Sounds and compare it to with the Spectre work, it's a lot less mushy. There's a lot less echo on it, but it's still got the thing that Jack Nitsche always did in the arrangements of doubling instruments. So you have two instruments playing the same melody line mm-hmm. and having more mm-hmm. than one instrument, more than one of the same instrument. You know, you'll have two basses rather rather than just one bass, and that that kind of thing. You know, I was explaining a little bit of this to to my wife, who she said, you know, why why are you listening to this uh, this music? <laughs> and yeah. I, I explained why, and I said, have you have you heard of the Wall of Sound? And she said, no. And I said, well, it's actually quite interesting. And that's one of the examples I used too, Andrew. I said, you know, if they wanted a piano track, 
they would take the same line and it would be played on the acoustic piano and then an electric piano and a harpsichord and they'd mix that all together as if it was one yeah. uh, one instrument, one line and it would give us this richness that you wouldn't really hear three different instruments you'd just hear one but it would be full and, and we were both kind of like well, that's really interesting and it's amazing how inventive and creative people got back before there was all this technology we have now they had to just figure it out some way and get creative and that's something that i found very interesting uh it's kind of you know as you say get get real nerdy about it it's kind of behind the music and i really like that i'm sure we'll talk more about the wall of sound as we go on but i i think one of the most fascinating elements for me is that so often music recording was trying to get um smaller and smaller spaces or at least make the recording space feel small to take away the echo and the sound bouncing that would happen uh specter kind of does the opposite and sort of has his musicians play in bigger spaces so that you can capture sort of a, a really robust acoustic uh of the sound reverberating all around the room and so you've got uh tracks that feature this sort of quote-unquote wall of sound that really do sound like they were recorded in a gymnasium or something like that um with the sound just kind of bouncing all over the place. Uh, yeah. It's it's an incredible effect, but I, I've also seen some some writing that sort of uh, uh, laments that it takes the individual out of the music playing. Like when you, when you muddy all the water and make it just a wall of sound, it becomes a singular thing that sort of makes the artistry uh, less important. And maybe that's why, I don't know, maybe that's why we see a greatest hits for a producer who's sort of yeah. muddying these waters rather than uh, a, a greatest hits for the wrecking crew, for instance, yeah. uh, because they, they play on pretty much every track here. Um, yeah. Well, Spectre was a massive, massive egomaniac is the thing. Spectre regarded himself as the creator and the, the session musicians are the singers as his instruments to the extent that there are tracks on here credited to the Crystals. They were released as Crystals records. They were actually sung by the Blossoms. But Spectre just decided he was going to stick the Crystals name on them instead because it didn't wow. matter who was doing the singing. Um, wow. uh, and that, huh. that's... Um, Spectre was a massive control freak. I mean, he's a horrible human being, uh, but he was a massive control freak, and he and he was always trying to boost his own profile, and he was trying to trying to make the records be about him rather than be about the musicians. Now, of course, the Wrecking Crew half the point of them was that they was that they tried not to play with particularly individual styles. You can still mm-hmm. you can still usually tell a Hal Blaine drum part from an Earl Palmer drum part or whatever, but they're they're playing what they're told to they're playing what they're what they're told to play by the producer. They're not um try, trying to trying to display their own artistry. Um yeah. But yeah, Spectre wanted them to be Phil Spectre Records, and that's smushing together of what everybody else was doing. Removing everybody else's individuality is a Phil Spectre thing, you know, um, which is why it gets interesting later in his career when he's working with people like John Lennon and Leonard Cohen, who are very, who are very much individual artists in their own right, and he can't do that. And there's a tension on those <laughs> later on, you know. But yeah, it's it's very much it's very much a deliberate thing. Phil Spectre did not want anybody else to be um, involved in to 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 be given the credit and he he was all about control to the extent that he, he the b-sides to his singles would be some crappy knockoff instrumental so that the, the dj wouldn't play the wrong side 
He, he was, he was put on a terrible, a terrible oh. instrumental on the B side, so there would only be one side for the for the DJ to play. This is why he has back to mono as well. If you're listening in stereo, where where you place the speakers changes the sound of the record, oh. so the listener has some control. Mono, just one speaker, you get what you're given by the producer. <laughs> this is why oh. producer prefers mono. That, wow, that's, that's who who he is. I mean, you know, it, and he was he was a he did some horrible things as a result of this. I mean, you know, he, he's in prison for murder now. He was basically yeah. locked his his wife up for a significant period of time. But it's all down to this control freak needing to yeah needing this ego that's mad. I mean, there were a lot of egos involved in the studios there, you know, and a lot of horrible people. But Spectre. Spectre is is pure ego, you know. Wow. I wanted to circle back to one thing you mentioned about the echo, Ben. And uh, I know that Phil Spectre did use, I don't know, every track, but use an echo chamber. Uh, Andrew, was he the first to use that or did he take that and just kind of use it a lot more? No, no. Uh, he, he, he sort of overused it. But uh, echo chambers have been around quite a while. Um, I believe that tape echo was used before echo chambers. Um I've okay. I've not looked I've not looked into the the precise timeline of this aspect of production, but my understanding is that you first see echo used deliberately by people like Sam Phillips, who who invented a tape echo device, and on on those early Elvis Presley records, he he used okay. slapback tape echo. Then when Elvis got signed to RCA uh, from Sun, which was Sam Phillips's label, they didn't know how he had got that big, that echoey sound. They didn't know about tape echo, so then they started using echo chambers to record Elvis. Um, and yeah, you know, so the, the echo chambers were in use at least as early as Heartbreak Hotel in 1956. I think probably earlier than that, but that's the first that's the first mm. big use of them that I can think of, specifically of, a, of an echo chamber. Um, and yeah, Spectre used both tape echo and an echo chamber, and he would have the musicians play the same track two or three times and mush it all together, all, all sorts of tricks to make it as mushy as possible. Yeah, yeah, I, I I wasn't familiar with the with the technique, and just I'll go very quickly for our listeners. The echo chamber, what I read about it was that you know they would take the sound, pump it into a room, often in the basement, maybe a maybe a concrete room in the basement. They would play play back the sound and, and have microphones set up and record that sound and then have it come back up to the studio and, and yeah. put it on the tape. Uh, and that was an echo chamber, a, a really, you know, kind of a simple way to do it, but I think effective for what he was trying to achieve um, and, and a really neat effect. But I think you are right. I also heard that he, <laughs> when I listened to it, you could hear that it is quote overused yeah. at times. It's like, <laughs> it's a little, it's a little much, but it's, it's distinctive. That's for sure. Yes. Yeah. So I, I, we might have got the idea of, the, of using an echo chamber in this way, actually, from uh, Lester Sill, who was the co-owner of Fairlized Records with him until Spectre kick, kicked him out. Um, Lester Sill, before he discovered Phil Spectre, Lester Sill's a fan, fascinating figure in his own right, but he had also worked with Lee Hazelwood and Dwayne Eddy on Dwayne Eddy's early records, like Rebel Rouser, and there they they basically built a huge tank echo chamber and used that in the studio. And I think Spectre may well have been sort of nudged in that direction by Lester Sill. I don't, I don't have anything to confirm that, but I think, I think that's probably where he was getting from. If you listen to those early Dwayne Eddy records, the big twangy reverby guitar, I think that's where he, he got the inspiration from specifically. Wow. Cool. 
I'm listening and, uh, and a, sort of a million thoughts are going through my head too and wondering which way I should take this. But um, just hearing some of what you said, Andrew, makes me think about a, a, a line that I had read about the track Zippity Doodah, which is uh, Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans, uh, a cover of the, <laughs> uh, the Walt Disney uh, theme song from, from Songs from the South. Um, that track in particular has a, a sort of wall of sound quality to it but the guitars have kind of a fuzzy sound which was um a producer uh, a sound engineer in the room had accidentally sort of over mixed the guitar and uh and specter kind of liked it and so said keep keep it in there which sort of rolls you know evolves eventually to sort of a fuzz distortion effect which you know becomes super commonplace and that, so, sorry, that's the quote that George Harrison said about it, isn't it? Which George Harrison presumably was told by Spectre, because George Spectre produced several George Harrison records. I don't think that's actually the case. I think that's Spectre bigging himself up and making it look like it was his thing. You've got, you've got, a, lot, you've got a lot of examples of fuzz guitar in the very early 60s. There's a book called Brady Martin who played on various um, Nashville sessions. Um, I can't remember the name. There's, a very fa- there's some very famous fuzz guitar that he played. Um, you've got things like... Um, uh, I, I, the Anne Margaret song, I, I, I Just Don't Understand, I think it's called. There's a, there's a very, very prominent fuzz bass on that. Um, and you've got you've got some fuzz guitar as early as uh, 1951. You've got uh, Rocket 88, another Sam Phillips track. Um, the amplifier was damaged, and again, that that was a case where the amplifier was damaged. They liked the sound; they left it in. So, if Spectre say, if Spectre told George Harrison that, and, and Harrison would have no reason not to believe him, other than that Phil Spectre said massive liar um but, uh, but if, if Spectre told Harrison that and it, it might it might be the case but you know the engineers at Gold Star and Western the studios that Spectre was using were pretty on the ball they knew how to make up an electric guitar mm-hmm. um yeah. I yeah. think I think I think that this was a, a deliberate effect that he's later tried to claim was a massive new innovation that, that yeah. he, he you know a, a, a discovery in the studio but I don't I don't think it was well, even the even the telling of that story, right? Like that it was some, someone else's mistake that he lifted up as brilliant yeah. and, and then claimed as his own. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it does point to an egotistical kind of trick. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I found this. You were about to delete it, but I I yes. claimed it, and <laughs> made it special. So yeah, thanks for that clarification. I was curious uh, how that fits into lore. I know one of the things I appreciate most about your podcast is the way that you sort of reclaim stories especially for uh people of color who who were probably first to a sound or a style or something like that um that was later adopted by a more popular white artist and and who would then take credit for it um uh, because of the way that history is written and so uh, you know there's i'm sure that there's Things like that with Phil Spector too. <laughs> oh, constantly, constantly, yes, yes. But Spector was somebody who claimed enormous amounts of credit, but he didn't actually do all that much. You know, he was the producer, but he he wasn't the person who directed the musicians in the studio. That was Sonny Bono. He wasn't the person who wrote the arrangements. That was usually Jack Nietzsche. You know, he he wasn't the engineer. That was people like Chuck Britz. He was the person who sort of sat back and let them do their thing yeah, and then <laughs> took the credit, you know. Um, yeah. I, he, he, he was capable. He was, you know, uh, To Know Him Is To Love Him, the first track on here, he wrote that by himself. He's, he's a, a singing and playing guitar. He was a 
capable person, uh, but, and he, he knew enough to pick the best people, and he did pick, pick the very best people, but that's basically what his, his job was, picking the best people. And yeah, it's yeah. his name on the, on the front of the box set, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, not, it's yeah. not Jack Nitsch's yeah, name, it's, a... it's not Chuck Witzer's name. Yeah. A little yeah. like, um, you know, George Steinbrenner taking credit for all the Yankee success, right? Like, it, yeah. you know, all he does is sort of sign the contracts and uh, <laughs> that, that's all. Um, yeah. Not the one on the on the playing field. So, yeah. Huh. And that leads us to, you mentioned the, his name on the cover and another interesting compilation album packaging and artwork. And when I look at this, I also got to remember that it's not CD size. It's like bigger than an LP size. you got this massive, fairly boring image. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's a black and white photo of Phil with shades on. You can't even really tell who it is really. Uh, I mean, if you know who he is, you can, but, uh, and it's superimposed onto a black and white picture of a brick wall and then giant red letters, Phil Spector and back to mono, really tiny down in the corner. So again, (laughs) even the, the picture, even though the picture I find is quite boring in this bizarre early nineties graphic design that we've seen, uh, it still is like, just, it's all him. But I mean, I, I don't. I still. I just don't understand the choices of some of these things we've seen. Like you could have put, mm-hmm. you know, a nice picture of him with some other artists, or some of the albums uh, that he'd produced, maybe spread out on the floor or something with him near them. But again, I guess that adds it to his ego. His ego, right? Uh, partly, but also when you, when you say about albums, Spectre was never really an albums person. You'll quite often find that Spectre produced the singles, or at least Spectre produced the A sides of the singles, the B, the B sides where you okay. have instrumental jams. Uh, but quite often, uh, quite often those artists wouldn't release albums at all. Or like in the case of the Righteous Brothers, Bill Medley produced all the album tracks, and then they stuck on the Phil Spectre singles. Or for Ike and Tina Turner, Ike Turner produced all the album tracks, and they stuck on the Phil Spectre singles. Uh, so hmm. Spectre didn't really hmm. produce any albums i don't know a little fuzzy on the details but i don't actually know if he is was the sole producer of an album until the uh, until um well even let it be doesn't count because george martin produced the sessions um so maybe all things was passed by george harrison that might be the first album album he produced or um plastic Honor band by john lennon um so which obviously is after the period that this box set covers i don't yeah, he, right. he was he was a singles person so yeah that's again oh, oh, oh of course other than the christmas album which was a separate thing but to itself kind of thing you know mm-hmm. right it's interesting i think i mean i'm speculating that this was just a an, an era choice. Like if this said "New Kids on the Block" in red lettering instead of Phil Spector, <laughs> like it it would fit pretty well, right? And yeah. um, and also yeah. he's not the most attractive guy just in general. Like a quick Google search of Phil Spector images, he's got <laughs> he's got a lot of really strange looking faces. Um, so so maybe this is just a subtle way to say you know. We we want to highlight this guy that has a big ego, but who really knows what to put there? We'll like kind of fade him out into the into the brick wall. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a good speculation <laughs> of that. Um, ben, are you going to read out all the songs that are on this album for us? <clears throat> Let me clear my breath. And <clears throat> no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I I want to move into. We've talked about a lot of the history and some of the 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 details behind 
the technique and and what he did. I want to move into maybe some of just some of the specific songs. Ben, I want to start with you. What kind of what jumped out at you right away? I mean, uh, there's a lot of music. There's a lot of different songs from different artists. But but was there something that jumped out to you? A song or an aspect of the music? Yeah, one um, that jumped out to me partially because it's on disc one, and so I got to it sooner than some of the others is zippity doodah i mentioned it already because of the the guitar sound on that track but it it just strikes me as so um odd i guess to have (laughs) a song from a a disney movie that we now consider to be fairly racist be covered by black artists um and, and to have that be not just a hit song for them but their first hit their their breakthrough hit um that that was really odd i i kind of like their rendition of it it's kind of slowed down and a little bit more smooth and laid back than the sort of peppy disneyfied version but i I don't know maybe especially this particular moment in time to think about an era where that sort of thing was acceptable consumer product um you know this this whole album in in general you know in a moment in time with with sort of cancel culture and and uh, what do we do with flawed people phil specter you know we should really just toss this whole thing out right <laughs> well, not even just specter this this album right look at looking at the people involved specter committed murder jack mitchy um committed a sexual assault on an ex-girlfriend that i can't actually describe how awful it is because it would be too distressing to explain but Believe me, that man was a monster. Sonny huh. Bono, um, spousal abuse. Jim Gordon, one of the, one of the drummers in the Wrecking Crew, currently currently serving life without parole for murdering his mother. These no are way. people. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Ike Turner, you know, was Ike Turner. Uh, the, 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 <laughs> the, the, there were a lot of very very bad men involved in huh. making this music. A lot, you wow. know. Um, um, so yeah, it's uh, and I, I think a lot of that comes out. You know, yeah. it's uh, it's very aggressive, emotional, rather nasty. And you know, mm-hmm. you, you've got you've got things like um, he hit me. And it felt like a kiss. Which yes, right. there's, a, there's a whole story about that. And you know, the record was scrapped pretty much straight away because everybody realised what a terrible mistake that was. But the fact that everybody involved thought it was a good idea to do that right up until the point it actually hit the shelves and then they realized that says a lot about everybody involved <laughs> you know? yeah yes <clears throat> wow yeah so th- there's there's that component of just sort of a jarring like what was going on in this moment in history i maybe i don't quite often think about how the racial injustice of our current moment is fairly close behind uh, a lot worse stuff that was very blatant and right in front of people and they weren't really doing much about it. So there's that piece. The other part that, that struck me as I was going through this massive collection of songs is there's a number of things that were very familiar, but I was often familiar with another artist's take on the song. And I'm not, I'm blanking on what some examples of that might be, but there was a decent amount of familiar stuff that I thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. That's there. Um, there's a, a cover of a John Lennon song on here, right? Uh, no, it's a Paul McCartney song, Hold Me Tight. Hold Me Tight, that's right, that's right. And, uh, you know, just stuff like that, that that jumped out like, oh, okay, I know this, but in a different kind of light or yeah. a different kind of way. And that happens fairly frequently throughout this decade of music uh, that we get to listen to here. 
Yeah. Well, part of that's because Spectre wasn't really very much of a writer. I mean, he again, he, he was a songwriter. You know, he wrote to know Mr. Love Him. He wrote the music for Spanish Harlem. He could write songs. Um, he could write good songs, but he was primarily a producer. He was re- he was relying on other people, other people to write the songs. So uh, you get things like Unchained Melody. You get things like Save the Last Dance for Me, uh, or the remakes of other, other people's songs. Because to him, the song wasn't what was important. The artist wasn't what was important. What was important was him. You know, so it didn't matter that, that the song had been done before. He was going to do it his way and do it best. You know. Interesting. Yeah, so when you take the sort of um, artistry out of crafting something and say, no, 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 it's the way that it's produced that's the brilliance. It doesn't really matter where you're, where you're drawing from um, because it's the production that's really going to be the thing that, that makes it sell in his mind. Huh? Yeah, that helps. Uh, there's a couple of other points on here where I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting. And it, I... I wish that I could, well, I don't know that I really ever want to meet Phil Spector, but I wish that I could hear him explain that too, because I don't always think that his versions are better. Um, sometimes no. they're just too over the top or too overproduced or or something like that. And and maybe that's just a stylistic challenge that I have that, that doesn't resonate with me in the same way. Yeah, he was a very intense person. He made very intense records. And yeah, um, sometimes it works and sometimes it really doesn't. Um, and yeah, he, he had a thing he could do and he could do that yeah. thing very well, but yeah. it's not always the right thing for the material. Yeah. The most interesting way in that respect, actually, for me, is this could be the night um, where you you can see I mean, that's on uh, right towards the end of his career as a hit single maker. Um, you could see he, he could see that there were all the things going on in the charts he was going to be left behind. I mean, this could be the night. It's written by Harry Nelson, but it's incredibly obviously him trying to make a Love and Spoonful record. The Love and Spoonful, <laughs> a big new, big new group at the time. So he got Nelson to write this song about losing your virginity, but he, 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 gave, and he gave it to the Modern Folk Quartet, who were a folk group, but he made it into a Love and Spoonful sound-alike record. <laughs> but it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite work, but it sort of works, you know. Um, yeah. And he, he's trying, he's trying to break out of his, his wall of sound box, but then he goes back, right back into it. He makes your know, River Deep, Mountain High, and those kind of things. I wish huh. I never saw the sunshine. Yeah. It reminded that track in particular reminded me a lot of the Beach Boys and felt to me like kind of a straight rip of, of some of their sounds. Well, uh, it, it, well, it's very Beach Boys. It's, it's one of Brian Wilson's favorite Spectre records. And when Brian Wilson started touring solo in 1999, he would include a cover version of that song in his set. Um, it, 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 I think it might even be Brian Wilson's favorite favorite Phil Spectre record, but I'm, I can't be certain of that. I, I, yeah. So, apart from anything else, Brian Wilson says a different thing every time anybody asks him a question. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it does sound very, it does sound very Beach Boys. But the Beach Boys is sort of what you get if you get that up tempo, love and spoonful kind of thing. But then you give it the big full spectre for the production. So yeah. I don't think he was going for the Beach Boys. He was going for the love and spoonful, but he missed and sort of hit the Beach Boys kind of thing. Wow. Because <laughs> again, it's, it's a Harry Nelson melody and Nelson. Was a very similar melodist to Brian Wilson. All these big long intervals and odd chords, you know. Another track that I, I wasn't quite sure what to do with is "Chapel of Love," because I know the much more upbeat. Uh, shoot, who's the artist that that sort of made it? Uh, um, was it the Dixie Cups? The um, Dixie Cups. Yes, that's right. Uh, the Dixie Cups cover of "Chapel of Love." I know uh, much, um, much more, and so. Um, 
and I, it's not that the Dixie Cup version is less produced, but Chapel of Love is like kind of trying to make this thing into a melancholy, joyful song. And uh, yeah, it just didn't quite click. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Mike, as you went through this massive, massive collection? <laughs> it, it was interesting because there were a few tracks that were very familiar. It was like either I didn't know it at all or I was like, oh, I've heard this song many, many times. Yeah. yeah. You know, now when you listen to the radio and they play, uh, quote, older songs or you listen to classic rock radio, it's stuff from the 70s and 80s. You don't even hear a lot. Like the classic rock radio station I listen to now, they don't even play much from the 60s anymore. They'll play a few Beatles tracks and a few Stones tracks, but they don't do a lot back there anymore. Of course, growing up in the 90s, the 90s and even maybe in the 2000s, when you listen to the oldies, uh, that was stuff from from the 50s and 60s. And it's a term I don't hear much anymore. But whenever it came on the radio, I don't know about in the UK or, or even in the US, but in Canada, they called it the Golden Oldies. Yeah, and when yeah. I first pushed play on this, I thought, well, this is the Golden Oldies. And there was a, a very, uh, it's still a station, a radio station um, in in Toronto called CHFI 98.1. And they played adult contemporary in the 90s. And it was current stuff from the 90s and maybe the 80s. But on Saturday night, there was a guy called... Dazzling Don Daynard, and he played the Saturday Night Old, and I'm sure you listened to it in the truck with your dad yep. um, a lot. And he put out a few uh, compilation albums, the best of Don Daynard's Saturday Night Oldies. And I am 100% sure that a bunch of these tracks were on those, and that's why I'm familiar with them, because my parents picked up those, because this was, especially my stepdad, who's a little older than my mom, uh, this was his era growing up in the 60s all these tunes all the love songs that's what they were playing in the you know when they went to the to the drive-in or whatever that's what he was listening to so there was some very familiar um unchained melody uh, is got to be one of the most familiar songs ever yeah uh, yeah in the history of music you could you hear it all over the place i think almost everybody would at least know it to hear it if they don't know the name so that was one that was like you know, it's just kind of bigger than, than life when I heard it on this compilation. Like, oh yeah, I definitely know this. Yeah. And perhaps especially in the 90s, I feel like that track was used in so many cheesy 90s comedies. Yeah, well, it was sure. a ghost as well, wasn't it? That, that Patrick from Ghost. Yeah. And then another one that this is a personal memory for me. I, I went to a summer camp for probably eight years growing up. It was a really important... Uh, time for me every summer to go to overnight camp for a couple weeks one of the things uh, at overnight camp which is really important is you always sing songs after lunch and supper there's always uh, you know 150 kids in the dining hall singing all these silly camp songs and at our camp we sang and I kid you not almost every day you've lost that love and feeling (laughs) imagine, imagine 150 kids from grades 2 up to grade you know, eight maybe, all singing, uh, but baby, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's hilarious. Thinking back to it now, it's hilarious. And I have no idea. I'm sure if I had my sister here right now, she could sing it along with me. But um, I don't know why that became a fun camp song that, that everybody was singing. And, you know, we'd put our arms around each other and get up on the benches and, and, you know, <laughs> pantomime and all this stuff. And it was this old song from the 60s. Uh, by the Righteous Brothers, and I bet you 
less than a percent of the kids knew where it came from. But yeah. again, it's 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 a special memory for me because when I hear it, I think about a bunch of kids wow. singing at a camp, which is really probably never a context that you think of for that song. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that was like outside of the songs that I knew, the sound was familiar from just those songs that I knew. So you, I don't want to say you hear one, you've heard it all, but yeah. a lot of them were very similar sounds. So I'd hear a bunch that I wouldn't know. And then I'd hear one that I know and be like, well, I get the gist of it. So um, <laughs> certainly there are some on this compilation, there are some absolutely massive hits um and that kind of made it uh, at least a little relevant for me we've listened to some albums ben you and i on this list that we just they have no relevance to us that's right previously this at least had some i thought that i would listen to this and know nothing but i i did know a lot of it and that was um it makes it a little more accessible um especially for someone who i mean andrew you've studied this and you know it very well uh but i I don't know the kind of the history of it. So it was nice to at least have some connection in, in the music. And and I think that that's what, what Phil Spector couldn't do or didn't do is that really connect, create that connection between the songwriter and the artist and the consumer yeah. where the songwriter was, I mean, you, you touched on this, man, almost all of these songs are about love and very specifically marriage. Like these 17 year olds singing, I found this boy and he's the one I'm going to marry because he's the cutest and he's the best I've ever found. And yeah. like 50 of these songs are about that. Um, so the lyrical content is is very, uh, is not diversified. However, <laughs> everybody, every kid growing up in the 50s and 60s can relate to that. And they're going to love that because that's what being a teen is about. That's what the culture was about. Uh, we talked that Phil Spector didn't, wasn't really a songwriter and didn't much care for what they were singing about he just wanted to make it sound a certain way so mm -hmm. they were writing the songs that were about what the average person was was thinking and talking about and what the culture was dictating so uh, that makes it accessible too it does i think the the challenge uh for this as an album though and maybe i'm jumping ahead to conclusions here i'd find that comfort zone with a track and then the next one would be a different artist and I'd lose all that sense of connectivity. So, oh, okay. so it, it felt jarring to me to move through this album because it was so much of a jump. Like I think when Ray Charles comes to mind, um, what was his compilation called that we listened to? Birth of Jazz? Birth of Soul. Birth of Soul, the Birth of Soul. Um, when we'd hear that, You'd, you'd get it to a track that you knew and be like, okay, yes, this is Ray Charles. This is how I am connected to this artist. Yeah. In this case, we go, oh, Phil Spector did this? Oh, okay, that's interesting. It kind of goes with the one that I heard three or four tracks ago. And then the next one would come on and be something very different, but having some similar qualities. So it was just hard to get into a comfortable rhythm here with that sort of sense of familiarity familiarity or how this fits or how this belongs anyway that's just a a side tangent for how how i felt as i was navigating this well i i think that and again not to jump to conclusions here but but this album feels more like a history lesson than yes a, yeah. a, an, an album of songs selected to be to work well together this right. is this is more like a textbook really yeah Here's what, here's what you need to know about the music that he created or the, sorry, that he 
put put his name on Mm -hmm. (laughs) as we've discussed (laughs) that he that he was the executive producer for um and not necessarily ones that you really really need to listen to together yeah yeah i mean it's it's basically just a chronological list of every song that he put of every record single a side that he produced plus the christmas gift for you album um in chronological order you know it's it's there's no there's no sort of thematic linking and so on you know and so you get things like you get the the clumps of songs where you have like a a bunch of ronette songs in a row or you know there's there's no there's no thought put into the sequencing other than this (laughs) this one was um catalog number 116 this one was catalog number 117 you know that kind of thing yeah (laughs) and we've talked about that before with the with the compilation albums uh very rarely if if ever is the artist involved in picking the songs uh let alone the order they're in yeah Uh, it's almost always the record company saying uh yeah we we want to put out a we think we can make some money off putting out you know a greatest hits right now uh you guys you know, and then they just do it. Like it never has anything to do with the artist. Uh, yeah. I, I quote me on that, but I don't think I've read that an artist has ever been involved in choosing what goes on a greatest hits. It's happened very, very occasionally. Um, yeah. I, I know Mike Love of the Beach Boys was very involved in putting together the Endless Summer compilation in the seventies. Um, okay, but um, I don't. I I can't. Uh, I can't off the top of my head think of many other many other examples. I mean, they, they must exist, um, but generally speaking, yeah, it's it's just done by the record labels without any input from the artist at all. One of the most interesting ones we talked about, not to jump too far off topic, but we talked about Bob Marley's Legend, which is which is extremely successful yeah. uh, as a as well not just as a compilation album, but as an album in general, has spent many many weeks on the Billboard 200 for sales, but it was just a selection of songs that really really appealed to a, a white american audience yeah and it was really just stripping off the top of all his great radio upbeat hits and didn't really touch on any of his and any none of the deep cuts none of the the songs that really talked about rebellion and revolution yeah and injustice in his country of jamaica uh and it just was a great example of how a, a producer in the record label decides what and for what purpose they're picking the songs. The purpose of yeah. that was to appeal to a white American audience for maximum sales. And it did exactly that. And when you listen to it, I mean, it's nothing but upbeat, happy, fun songs. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and, and I am, I am that audience. I'm a, I'm a white North American male uh, who's listened to Bob Marley songs on the radio. So it's for me and I really like it. So it worked, (laughs) but uh, nothing to do with, um, Bob Marley. Of course he was passed when, when it was released, but him or anybody in the whalers or anybody, uh, involved in that saying, well, here's how we want him to be remembered. That's not what it was about. And certainly here, it's not about, again, it's just about giving a chronological listing. Yeah, we haven't asked your thoughts on what what of these tracks stand out to you as you go through this uh, four disc set. Well, I mentioned one already, which was this could be the night. Um, there's a, a few others that I really like. I um, the uh, the I can see the Turner version of Save the Last Dance for me is absolutely fascinating. Um, uh, and again, I'm talking about how how much Brian Wilson is a fan of fan of 
factors work. You listen to you listen to the Beach Boys song Heroes and Villains. That boom 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 bassline comes directly from this version of Save the Last Dance for Me. Um, then uh, you've lost that loving feeling. It's, it's just the most fantastic dynamics where it drops down to just the bass uh, the playing basically Louie Louie or Hang On Sleepy with that boom 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 baby baby and it builds and builds and builds yeah. there's, there's, not, yeah. there's not that much use of dynamics in these records generally it's, it's all very all the way through but that one dropping down to almost nothing and building back up again that really really works um, I'm just going through the list to see what else the uh, see, see if I'm missing th- things out, um, but um, just let me see. I, obviously, there's the, the um, intro to "Be My Baby." That boom, 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 boom. The, the, that wonderful, wonderful drum sound there. You know, there, there are there are a lot of great moments on on there. Um, it, the whole is sort of somewhat less than the sum of the parts, I think, because because you've got these great individual moments, but they sort of as the whole box set sort of like with Spectre's, Spectre's production it blurs into one mush of things you know you, you listen to two or three tracks from it and you think this is fantastic you listen to 50 tracks and you think this is all the same you know um, <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um, but yeah the, uh, oh, oh well I, I should have mentioned just once in my life uh, the Righteous Brothers follow up to You've Lost That Loving Feeling which is just the most astonishing astonishing song I, mean, I, I think it's I think it's a much better record than you've lost that loving feeling although it's clearly just you've lost that loving feeling take two but <laughs> the, 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 I can't give you the world but I work hard the, it, it's the, the, the baby those righteous for the singles are fantastic and that one in particular I just I just love that um, but yeah then you've you've yeah, you know, but there's a lot. There's a lot on there that doesn't have that immediacy for me. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of songs on here that <coughs> were done were done many 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 times. Like yeah. even uh, you mentioned, save the last dance for me. Like by the time Ike and Tina are doing it, it's already been covered a dozen times. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> when it, when it was written in like uh, 1960 or so. Yeah. Uh, so that that I find very interesting that not only are some of these songs covered, but some of those covers have been done many times before and after, like many, many, many times, which was common with a lot of that era. Yeah. But still, I find it interesting. Yeah, again, it's, I mean, it, while Spectre is a credited songwriter on a lot of these things, uh, he, he, he wasn't a songwriter, he, he didn't really care about songs in the, in the way that other, other people did. I say he's a credited songwriter because if you look at the, if you look at the credits, he keeps going like, Jeff Barry, Ellie Gretsch, and Phil Spector, Gotham King and Phil Spector as the, as the writers. But of course, you look at Jeff Barry and Ellie Gretsch and Gotham and King wrote thousands of songs by themselves without Phil Spector that sound just like these ones. I, I, think, Phil, <laughs> I think Phil Spector's contribution song, songwriting-wise was fairly minimal, you know. I, right. I, could, I could be wrong, he, he could have put them, but, you know, I've, I've, not, I've never heard anything to suggest that, you know. Um, so he he, he, did, he he saw songs as raw material, and it didn't really matter what the song was. Didn't really matter to him. And if if you know Goffin and King hadn't given him a song for a while, he'd just pick up something from 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 an old Disney film or something from something that had been a hit five years earlier and give it a go because why not? Yeah. 
Do you have any sense of like why, what gave him the credibility to keep doing that? I mean, it, it seems a little bit like a snake oil salesman to me to, to like just kind of attach yourself to the biggest and brightest and then call it your own. Was there, was there a breakthrough moment that gave him the, the permission to continue to do that over and over again? Well, well, basically, his first single was a massive hit. To Know Him Is To Love Him is pretty much entirely his creation. Um, the, the, written by him, it was his group, he, he was one of the three singers, he played guitar and he produced it. Goes to number one, massive hit. Um, so he was, you know, the boy genius from that from that point on. Um, and uh, To Know Him Is To Love Him is, is a great record. A, a big influence on the Beatles, for example. Um, it's quite a sad story because that, that's actually, you know, the song title is the epitaph on Spectre's dad's grave. To Know Him Was To Love Him was the, was the thing. Um, and it was written, wow. uh, he sort of wrote it about his dad who, who killed himself and that messed Spectre up a lot. Off the back of, off the back of that, Lester Sill gets... Um, becomes convinced that Spectre, Spectre has potential. Lester Sill, I mentioned him earlier, but he was... He, he's one of these figures who, who pops up all over the place throughout the 50s and 60s. And in particular, he had been the person who had discovered Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. Now, for anybody listening who doesn't know who Lieber and Stoller were, they wrote a ton of Elvis's biggest hits. They wrote um, the, all the hits for the coasters. Um, they, they wrote a thousand songs you've heard. Um, they, uh, they, they were just the songwriting team of the of the late 50s and early 60s and Lester still had discovered them uh, when Joe Lee was, was a 19 year old kid working in a record shop um, and, and so Lester Sill gets Lee Van Stoller to look after this new G- boy genius he's found Lee Van Stoller hateful Spectre they, 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 he, they find him annoying he's constantly following them around he's <laughs> he, 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 he's got bad hygiene he, he, he doesn't have anywhere to live so he ends up sleep, sleeping in Jerry Lieber's house um, you know he's, he, he, um, they, they don't like him at all but they owe Lester Sill so much he, he's so important mm. to them that they do this as a favour to Lester Sill Spectre then badges Jerry Lieber all the time can we write a song together? Can we write a song together? Can we write a song together? <laughs> and um, Lieber keeps telling them, no, I write songs with Mike. That's what I do. Mike's the one I wrote Yakety Yak and Hound Dog and things with. You know? <laughs> and Spectre tells Lieber, well, Mike can write with us too. And Lieber sits and says, no, the way this works is if we write together, which probably isn't going to happen, you get to... you." get to write with Lieber and Stoller. It's not Mike gets to write with me and you. Um, and Spectre goes, oh, of course, that's what I meant. And then one day, Mike Stoller can't turn up for the writing session, and Phil Spectre basically badges Jerry Lieber into writing with him, and they write Spanish Harlem together, which becomes a massive hit again. Um, and, you know, and so then... Thought, and Lieber and Stoller, like, gave Spectre, like, Karina Karina, the second song on this, They'd been asked to produce that record, and they couldn't be bothered, so they told Spectre to go off and do it for them, kind of thing. And so he latched onto Lieber and Stella because Lester Searle had been impressed with To Know Him As To Love Him. And that then, once he'd, once he'd had a couple of hits off the back of his relationship with Lieber and Stella, then he persuades Lester Searle to co-finance a record company with him. Um, and then, as soon as it starts having hits, he behaves so obnoxiously to Lester Sill that Sill walks away without any of, any of the money and basically just leaves Phil in charge. 
Um, so it, it's it's that that kind of thing, you know. It, it's just 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 about obnoxious enough that, pe- that people find it easier to deal with you than to than to make you go away, you know. <laughs> uh. <laughs> But enough critical success to sort of have some lasting power there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then obviously once once he started making records like he's a rebel and to do run run and you know these, these kind of massive hits, then then you know he, he's got the power and he owns his own record company at this point. He's got the money. Mm-hmm. You know he he he's in charge. Um, but that's how he gets to be in charge. You know. Huh. That's really a really interesting story. <laughs> And is is the moral of that story? If you just annoy someone for long enough, they will just leave you with all the money. Yes, <laughs> I'm gonna try that. <laughs> We've got a, a Spotify playlist, and we pick a couple songs from every album. Uh, if you would be so bold, Andrew, as to pick only two tracks to represent this album, what do you think they would be? Um. Well, it depends on what you, if, if you want, it depends whether you want to pick the two best or most interesting or most listenable tracks or the two sort of most representative the two most average tracks um, <laughs> if, if you're going for the former if you're going for just pure listenability I'd go for just once in my life and this could be the night because they're not overplayed but they're still absolutely fantastic records they're the, some of the very best um, if you're going for the most Phil Spectre-ish, then I would, prob- I would probably go for, um, I won't say he hit me up for like a kiss because that's, that, that's <laughs> seriously problematic. Probably problematic. Something, probably something like, why do lovers break each other's hearts and um, the best part of breaking up, yeah. Is Folgers in your cup? <laughs> oh no, wait, that's something else. That's a commercial. Best part of waking up. Uh, I'd go with the former on that one, The those two. What do you think, Ben? That's fine with me. So we'll we'll do. Uh, let me make sure I got them here. This could be the night and just once in my life was it? Just one. once in my life. Okay, I think I've got those here now. Yeah, I think that's great. We've had uh, our guests have chosen um, what they think is a good representation of the album, and others have just said, you know what, these are my two favorite songs. I'm going to pick those. <laughs> yeah. A question we like to ask when we do this, and sometimes it's problematic, although I think it's important, is. Is this album as it stands still relevant for someone to listen to today? And that becomes even more challenging to answer with something like this, which is very different than a lot of the compilation albums, let alone albums that we listen to. Uh, but what would you say about the relevancy of this music? We talked about the history and some of the impact on recording processes. We talked about the style and ego of Phil Spector and kind of how that's affected this whole thing and the release of this. Uh, But in terms of the music itself, I mean, we've talked, these are some of the most iconic songs to ever be produced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is this album, even though that's, it's uh, comically large, is it still (laughs) relevant for, would it be something you say, you know what, you should, you should at least listen to one of these discs. What what do you think, Andrew? Let's start with you. Um, I think, if you want to have any understanding of 20th century pop music, you need to listen, you need to, listen to the whole thing, frankly. I mm. think if you just want an enjoyable listening experience, then what you want is a 10 or 20 song best of from, from this. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the best person to talk to, 
say what is relevant in today's cultural context because you know I'm I'm, I'm somebody who started a podcast in, uh, talking about music from 1938. You know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that that, that was on, that was as uh, as late as I could re- as I could re- get away with, I, I, uh, as I could force myself to, I would have started in like eighteen fifty or something if I had my time. <laughs> yeah. um, but, um, but I think I think the best of this music stands up very well. Um, yeah. I think I think it's I think it's hugely important, um, and those those two things aren't aren't quite the same, you know. Um, but. I, you know, everybody, everybody should should at least listen to the twenty best songs off this off this box set. Everybody who wants to understand the history of record production and the history of American chart music should listen to the whole thing. I think that sums up uh, much better than I would have said. Any of the thoughts I had that, again, I mentioned this before, but it, it does feel like a history lesson when I listen to it, and and that's I don't say that negatively. Yeah, the impact of this of the music and even some of the the recording styles and some of these incredible songs are so relevant but the whole thing um just to listen to as you know popular music maybe not but but i think in terms of i totally agree in terms of understanding where music went beyond the 60s this is very a really important piece of the puzzle i totally agree I'll, I'll pour some cold water on this a little bit, maybe. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think from a, a purely sort of uh, construction sense, uh, the box set we've talked about a couple of times is just such yeah. a, a dated, irrelevant sort of method for consuming music. It's kind of yes. nice to have all these songs here in one spot, but I, when I listen to it, I, I uh, think about a preaching professor in seminary who said like take what you think is your good sermon and and try and cut it in half and you'll realize just how hard it is to be succinct and short and good and and i think when you've got a four disc set that's what's going to happen you're going to you could be a whole lot better if you just cut like half of it out um and and i think we often hear that on the double albums like you know there have been a few that we've thought man this would have just been a really incredible single disc uh, single LP if if they had a producer with enough sort of pushback to say no no guys like take these songs out and you'll have a really good single disc uh, but the, <laughs> the artist sort of like throws on all the stuff that they've been sort of tinkering with and and makes it kind of bloated and I get that same feeling here like I don't really need this much music to get a sense of Phil Spector um, so I I think Mike was it you or or was it Andrew who started out by saying this album feels like a textbook and I think that's a great example and I don't really think of textbooks as being relevant I think about them being important and I think that they're necessary and I think that they help us get somewhere but but the relevancy does not strike me when I listen to this Well there's no there's no protest so <laughs> we're going to let you keep that thought <laughs> I mean I I think I can just keep that tangent right going for the next part, which is was it sound logic to include it here on this list. I I really don't think compilation albums, especially a compilation album made up of what you described, Andrew, as someone who only wrote for singles, only wrote for sort of big radio hits and didn't really consider what an album might be sort of as they were creating. There's no reason to have this on a list of the greatest albums. It is absolutely an important piece of music to hold it up 
it's absolutely something that people should be listening to. It should not be on a list of the greatest albums of all time. Um, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure. This is a theme that's been ongoing. I think in, as we've gone through this list to say sort of compilations, no, but this one maybe even more than anything we've tackled so far, it just feels, um, I don't know, strange to have it here with, with all these others. And I don't, I'm still trying to process whether I think uh, a producer is a good reason for making a compilation, a compilation. Um, but but that's another tangent for another day, perhaps. <laughs> I, I think I think a producer can be. Um, you know, there, there are a very small number of producers who I would say that about. Um, Spectre is one. Um, you could you could make this. Uh, Joe Meek is another, is another one. Um, Stan Phillips. There are a handful of people who where their production sound was more important than the individual artists they produced, or as important in the case of okay. Sam Phillips. Okay. Sam, Sam Phillips, I mean, he discovered Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and people like that. You can't say that those aren't, don't matter, but you could, there was a Sun Records sound. I th- there was a Phil Spector sound. There's a Joe Meek sound. Um, and so I, I think, I think, uh, yeah, I, uh, the, the, Question of whether the question of whether to put them in, into a list of the five hundred greatest al- albums or not is it a different matter? Because of course, you know you you can do, you can discuss whether compilation should be on there should be on there or not. Um, but I think if you just in terms of can you make a compilation based on this? I mean, obviously you can make a compilation based on anything at all. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 not, I don't remember exactly what's on the Rolling Stone list, but I would imagine things like Nuggets are on there or maybe the Harry Smith anthology and things like that, which are even less centered on one person. Um, but if you're going to make a, if you're going to make a, a compilation based on one person, then Phil Spector you, when you listen to to those records, they all sound like Phil Spector records. You know, um, it's not it's not like say George Martin. But, you know, you listen to a Beatles record and a Jerry and the Pacemakers record, and you know, the, the the America records you produce, they don't they don't sound the same. You know, right? Um, yeah. But you listen you listen to Phil Spector records. This, as we've said several times, they sound the same. They sound like Phil Spector records. So I think from that point of view, it makes perfect sense. And also from the point of view of, of whether an audience for this exists, there are people out there who are Phil Spector fans in particular. Yeah. There are people out there, there are people out there who wanted a collection of all Phil Spector stuff in one place. So from that point of view, you know, it, it definitely makes sense. I think. Hmm. The other thing we talked about too is that um, that this is we used the 2012 list. There was that, that's the second list they did one in 2003. Yeah, the 500 list and the 2003. The way they've in the book they released say that you know we put out a survey it was an open survey to over 200 people in the industry and they picked their top 50 and then we we calculated we tabulated that and then we got yeah. this 500 list and then when they did it in 2012 they took that list and they kind of they did a the best of the 2000s list and they kind of mashed some of those in there and had a panel of just a handful of people kind of tweak it but i i have strongly contended that even the 2003 list, I feel like there's albums on there that nobody would have voted for. <laughs> and I think that this, I think that this is one of them. I could see people voting for Righteous Brothers albums, for Icantina albums, for, for the Crystals and saying that was a really important, you know, yeah. a, an art, an artist uh, who was popular in the seventies saying this album from the early sixties was really important to me uh, and was a big album. I could see that. I don't see them picking this compilation album 
from 1991 as one that really affected me. Maybe some of the music on it, yes, but I just think that this is an editorial edition and that they weren't maybe as completely transparent as they could have been on exactly how they created that list, which is fine. That's their prerogative. And, you know, it's a big company and a big publication and they're going to do what they need to do. And I'm okay with that. But (laughs) I just don't feel that it was just the survey in 2003. I'm sure that this was something that they said, well, we need to add this in or maybe... Maybe it was a push to get some more sales of those big, uh, ridiculous box sets. <laughs> they had a few kicking around that they wanted to. Oh, that so they capitalism got some... is to blame here. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> Anyways, and it's funny because usually when we ask this question, we're asking, uh, "Do you agree? You, do you agree with the with the number that this was number sixty five? Uh, but it, this has emerged as, do you think it even should be on the <laughs> list <either>. at all? <laughs> uh, right. And for the compilation albums, uh, yeah, it's challenging. But uh, no, I think the, that's all really good, good input there. Uh, and this is, you know, I don't want to just throw it away because this is a different type of album. We haven't listened to something like this before mm-hmm. on the list, and um, it it's very compelling and very challenging to kind of categorize it. And certainly there is a place, but I, I'm with you, Ben. I don't know if there if I would put it on this list, uh, but I would have much preferred, you know, an album from the Righteous Brothers. Yeah. Well, see, this is this is the problem where you where you get when you get to the Phil Spector stuff. There there are the, he and his record label were so overwhelmingly concerned with singles that the albums, the Righteous Brothers were a slight exception because Bill Medley was actually a decent producer in his own right and there were a couple of decent Righteous Brothers album tracks. But in general, the albums are one great single and a bunch of filler that nobody cares about when they they put out an album at all. And a lot of those artists didn't even put out albums. They were purely singles acts. So from that point of view, the only way you're going to get anything from those people onto onto such a list is to is to do it through this box set or through another specter oriented compilation rather than you know i i don't even i don't even know off the top of my head if there is such a thing as a crystals album but there probably was but you know they they didn't make any any classic albums in in the sense that we think of a classic album Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, they, they they weren't thinking in those terms. They were they were so purely oriented towards singles and towards just the A sides of singles, even that they didn't, albums weren't a consideration. So you so you won't get anybody saying, "Oh, that Crystals album was the best" or something like that. It just it just doesn't happen. Right. Well, I that just about brings us to the end. We do we've mentioned this before, and we always like to talk. Are we going to come across any other albums uh, by? Phil Spector or given that have given his name. And uh, as you mentioned, Ben, that Christmas album, which is contained in this box set does come up at number 142, a Christmas gift for you from Phil Spector from 1963. So we get to talk about him one more time. Which is good because we didn't really talk about the Christmas tracks at all in our discussion tonight. So um, we, we've saved a lot of that for the next time. <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah, we'll say that was intentional. Uh, um, Andrew, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you would add uh, to this? Um, not that, not that I can think of. Um, the only, the only thing I would say is, um, if you're somebody who is actually sort of hooked by this music, 
one, one thing I would suggest to anybody who, fi- who finds the Spectre Records interesting is go and get hold of a series of compilations called the Jack Nitsche story. Jack Nitsche arranged the, all Spectre's records, and if you listen to the work he did by himself and with other artists, you can see how much of this was his contribution and how much of it was Spectre's very, very well. And there's, there's also some great music. If you can get past the fact, again, that this is... Jack Nitsche was a horrible, horrible human being who did some appalling things, which I can't condone. But uh, in particular, one called Hard Working Man, which I think is the second or third in the series. There's some wonderful music on that. And if you listen to that and compare it to Back to Mono, you'll, get, you'll be able to sort of figure out for yourself, okay, so this is what Spectre was doing, and this is what everybody else was doing. Hmm. 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 Interesting. Andrew, is there is there anything else that you would like to plug uh, that you're working on right now? Well, I, I'm, I'm currently working on the podcast series, The History of Rock Music in 500 Songs, which you can find at 500songs.com. That's 500, the numbers, songs.com. And uh, I've covered Spectre a little bit in a couple of episodes so far, um, and I'm going to be covering him more in, in future episodes. Um, I've also um, I wrote a book a few years back called California Dreaming, the LA Pop Music Scene in the 60s, and that has... That's like a song-by-song look at just music that was been made in LA between 1960 and 1970, sort of like a little mini version of what I'm doing with the podcast. Oh, and cool. that has several Spectre tracks in it. It's Be My Baby and River Deep Mountain High and one or two more. So if, if you found... If you found my waffling here at all interesting, check those out for slightly more structured and fact-checked versions of my waffling. Um, and the podcast is just about to get to episode 100, which is going to be a special oh, feature episode on, on uh, Love Me Do. That one's going to be like an hour and a half. Normally, they only run, the episodes run about half an hour. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of preparing episode 98 now. That's coming out in a few days' time. Then I'm dropping episodes 99 and 100 at the same time, a week or so after that. Um, so that's a good jumping-on point, and um, year three will be starting probably around the time you listen to this podcast or maybe a week or two after it. Um, and year three is when I, I get to the 60s. You know, um, I've... I've just covered Bob Dylan. I'm, I'm going to be covering the Beach Boys and the Beatles in the next week, and, the, and then the, the 60s starts proper there. So it, wow. I'm at a good jumping on point for people who want to. Well, we uh, back uh, five albums ago, six albums ago, um, when we tackled Trout Mask Replica, we had a, a guy on with us named Brad Efford. Um, for the last few years, he and about a hundred of his closest friends <laughs> wrote, <laughs> wrote essays for each of the five hundred albums on uh, Rolling Stone's list. And uh, his project is called the RS Five Hundred. I, I sense a, a kindred spirit in the two of you—people who can just talk and write. Uh, for long periods of time about about the music that has been created over the last several decades and um, it, it's been a real joy tonight to to get to know you just a little bit better and uh, and to have your voice added to our program yeah thank you it's been a pleasure uh, we want to thank you for listening of course thank you very much andrew hickey for joining us it's been a great pleasure my friend thank yeah, you absolutely yeah uh till next time we hope you're all well and safe And we hope that you join us again on the SoundLogic Podcast. Take care. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our SoundLogic Podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.